I think a mistake a lot of these trainers make and or nutritionists or dietitians is that they try to fix their diet first, which I don't know about you, changing someone's diet is ungodly hard. Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Welcome back or welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I'm Mark Bubbs and this is season number seven. Delighted to be talking with Dr. Jose Antonio today, CEO and co-founder of the International Society of Sports Nutrition and co-founder and vice president of the Society for Neurosports, both academic nonprofits dedicated to the science and application of sports nutrition, supplementation and sports neuroscience. Dr. Antonio has published over 100 peer-reviewed papers as well as over a dozen books and is currently a professor at the Nova Southeastern University in Davie, Florida. I met Dr. Antonio quite a few years back now at an ISSN event and if you haven't been to one then definitely add it to your list. The research, the presentations, the networking, it is definitely all top-notch. I think you're going to enjoy today's conversation. Jose and I cover a lot of territory and really a lot of the applied parts, you know, where the rubber really meets the road on things like fueling for team sport, concussion, use of creatine, challenges of making dietary changes with athletes, and a whole, whole bunch more. If you want to circle back to season one, you can hear the previous episode with uh, Dr. Antonio. We talk all about supplementation and sport there. So if you're interested, then definitely check that out. Before we get started, a quick shout out to athleteperformancenutrition.com who are sponsoring today's show. Do you want to make a bigger impact with your athletes this year? If the answer is yes, you'll want to grab a seat in the updated Performance Nutrition Foundations course 2.0 starting this February. Level up your knowledge on team sport nutrition, immune nutrition, fueling and compressed windows, sleep, the athlete gut, nutrigenomics, and most importantly, mindset coaching and how to connect with your athletes so you can really make a difference. You'll learn from leading experts you've heard from on the podcast, you'll get access to monthly mentoring sessions, and you'll be able to connect with like-minded practitioners working in the field. Just head over to athleteperformancenutrition.com forward slash courses. Last chance to save as well 50% off the cost of the course using the code PN2023. That's athleteperformancenutrition.com forward slash courses. Use the code PN2023 and save 50% off the cost of the course. And you can join us this February for the 12-week intensive. All right, let's get rolling. My conversation with Dr. Jose Antonio. You know, what's new and exciting this year at uh, at the university with, uh, with the students and, and the projects you guys have, have on tap? Well, um, I do want to make a quick plug where uh, yeah. myself and a colleague, Jamie Tarter, were organizing a neurosports conference called the Society for Neurosports. It Amazing. is at Deerfield Beach, Florida. So if you want to escape the rain and the cold, come to Florida, um, February 17 and 18. And we have, it's, it's, it's an interesting combination of exercise scientists and neuroscientists. Amazing. And, and so, for instance, some of the projects we're doing now, a lot of it involves uh, dietary supplementation, but also looking at the effects of dietary supplements on on cognitive performance, not just physical performance. So that's where we're trying to blend exercise science and neuroscience. So in a way, it's kind of a wide open field because yeah. 
we, well, I always talk, when I talk to neuroscientists, the, the conversation sort of goes like this. The exercise science people are really good in understanding things from the neck down. We know skeletal muscle, we know cardiac muscle, we know, yeah. uh, you know, metabolism. But then when we start dealing with the brain, we're like, eh, I don't know what's going on because you, you can't biopsy the brain, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. But then the neuroscientists, they have their own conundrum because 99% of them do only animal work because wow. you could take, yeah. you could take out the brain. Yep. And I, and I tell them all the time, I say, unfortunately, a, a lot of the rodent work just doesn't apply to humans when it comes to exercise and nutrition. Mm -hmm. So trying to get the neuro people to study humans is actually, it's quite a task because it's not really how they're, they're trained. So, but like, for instance, there was a, um, there was a recent publication which looked at, they called it um, brain training, the effects of brain training or brain endurance training on subsequent endurance performance. Okay. So what they did, and I was like, well, this is interesting. I wonder what the endurance performance was. And then when you find out, you're like, okay, well, it's kind of goofy, but at least someone tried. <laughs> nice. So they gave them a task, right? Something that's mentally challenging. You know, um, I mean, there's so many things you could come up with that's mentally challenged but let's say you come up with a task um and then you test them physically in this case you know i'm thinking god i'm really curious what the endurance task was mm -hmm. the endurance task was hand grip okay. <laughs> like, like a lot of hand gripping right i'm like okay well they chose it because it's easy you can mm. measure endurance with it but it's not running biking or swimming i mean but but you know it's easy and they're trying yeah and and they actually found that prior you know, brain endurance training. So giving yourself a cognitive challenge actually helped with the hand grip task, which I'm like, okay, that's kind of cool. I mean, I mean, we don't know why we just know it seems to work. So now yeah. does it apply? Does it apply, like, if I want to run a race or if I, I want to paddle or I want to do a one rep max, I don't, maybe, you know, because we can't biopsy the brain. So we're all sort of like, for sure. You know, Is there an example, Doc, of like uh, the type of brain challenge that they might have given? Like what, what's an uh, example of what you Well, I think do? one was the uh, Stroop test. It was the, okay. the color uh, color and the words uh, not matching. And I yep. think you have to say the words. Um, okay. So pretty straightforward. So like... Right. And if you do, if you have to do it quickly, it's hard because yeah. you sort of get, you sort of get fooled. Um, but I, I sort of liken this sports neuroscience field to you're sticking your hand in a box that's dark and you're, you're feeling around and trying to figure out what's in the box, mm -hmm. but you're never allowed to look at it. So you're like, oh, yeah. what is this? And that, cause that's the brain and it, yeah. you know, it's complicated, but that's just the way it is. So we're doing that. And also, you know, I'm still doing the traditional exercise science stuff where uh, one of my grad students, she's working on a, um, it's uh, the effects of a high protein overfeeding, but we're looking at a particular gene. It's called the uh, FTO or fat mass and obesity associated gene. And once we genotype all the subjects, so some su subjects will be what we call normal obesity. So, I mean, normal risk for obesity. Yep. The other subjects will be at higher risk for obesity. And obviously subjects don't know what their genetics are because they've never been genotyped. Yep. But then after the four weeks of overfeeding, is there a difference in how their body responds in terms of body composition to overfeeding? Now, I want to backtrack a bit because we, we did a similar study with underfeeding. Okay. And with protein, with, excuse me, with calorie underfeeding. And we wanted to see if those who had the genetics for a propensity for obesity, uh, if they 
responded differently than those who had a propensity uh, or a normal risk for uh, normal risk for obesity. Mm-hmm. And we really found basically no difference that, and I hate to say it, and, and you know this well, that yeah. at the end of the day, if you, if you eat less, you lose weight. <laughs> <laughs> it would be nice if the genes helped to describe a little bit more, but I guess in some circumstances, it's just not, it's just so many inputs, isn't there? So I guess in this next one, you're going on the protein overfeeding side to see if there's any potential there. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, you know what, the the irony of this is that not many people do protein overfeeding studies. I wish they would. Mm-hmm. But I think what people are finding is that it's actually, it's kind of difficult to eat a lot. I mean, you think it's easy. It's like, okay, you just eat a lot more protein than you're used to. And it's like, oh, that's yeah. easy. I'll just drink shakes. And then after like the third shake, you're like, God, I really don't want to do this. So we need more of those overfeeding studies because at least in the athletic realm, Protein, you know, eating a lot of protein is an issue. And and people are always asking me, well, what about your, you know, I said, what about your aunt or uncle who just walks their dog three times, you know, three times a week in the neighborhood? Should they consume this much protein? And my answer to that is there's no way in hell they're ever going to even think about consuming that much protein. So for them, it's actually a moot point. Yeah. Um, the only people who who purposely consume that much protein are athletes. And it's usually... Athletes more on the physique side, but also, I, you know, I've worked with a lot of endurance athletes and now they're becoming a lot more cognizant of, you know what, I need to get my protein because out of all the macronutrients, and I think you would agree, protein might be the hardest, the most difficult to get enough of. Yeah. I mean, let me ask you this. Have you ever met a, an individual who works out or an athlete who has come up to you and said, you know what, Mark, I just can't eat enough carbs. I'm having a hard time. I don't know how to do it. Yeah, Help pretty- me. It's pretty easy to knock them back depending on the types, right? Right, exactly. Well, another, that's a great point because then obviously with athletes, I mean, you get the palate fatigue, whether it's shakes, whether it's chicken breasts, whether it's the same type of proteins all the time. And so, you know, we get this with the different staffs or athletes of like, you assume that a, an athlete is hitting a certain amount, but when you actually pause and, and look at what they're taking in, you, you're you're shorter than what you think, Right. Yeah. And in fact, uh, talking to, you know, I have friends who are still bodybuilding well into their fifties, you know, and I met them when I was in grad school, like 20, 30 years ago. And even they'll say, (laughs) my jaw muscles would get tired if I tried to eat too much protein. So the only way to do it is through shakes. So, so the idea that it's just easy to eat too, you know, quote, too much protein, although it's not clear what too much protein really means, but yeah, you know, eating too much protein. No, it's, it's, it's in a way it's physically difficult. It's, it's not something that anyone, you know, put this way, I could easily overeat on carbs and fat. I mean, <laughs> let's face it, carbs and fat taste better. And it's like, 100%. I could eat cake, I could eat cookies, I, you know, whatever it's eat ice cream. I'm like, but you know, if, if, if you're full, like, I, I, you know, my daughter always says that we go to a restaurant, we, we were full and she's like, you know what, even though I'm full, I could still have sugar. <laughs> so we have dessert. I'm like, yeah, you know, you're right. I don't want another piece of steak, but you know, give me that piece piece of sugar there and i will consume that cake so or ice cream or whatever it's just weird how yeah. how the brain and the tongue it's like give me sugar give me sugar give me fat <laughs> it's, it's so much easier isn't it with carbs or fats to change the taste profiles and make it you know the brain sort of lights up protein is tough man you, know, you can only it's really tough. go so many ways <laughs> i know and you can only flavor it so many ways whereas yeah. you know sugar and fat it's like wow there's so many delicious combinations 100 <laughs> well, uh, percent. and in terms of the conference i mean obviously uh you know head traumas front and center with uh, football ice hockey you know even soccer uh, 
what have you guys, what's coming down the pipeline there in terms of, you know, we see a lot with Omega-3 index. We see a lot of testing coming out, um, point of care testing potentially. You know, what, what are you guys finding? Yeah, actually the keynote speaker, um, he's part of the Harvard Health uh, Initiative where they're studying uh, football players and, yeah. and traumatic brain injury and things like that. And, you know, at this point, a lot of it is a lot of it is focused on prevention or if you're in a competitive sport, you got to learn how to like in football, learn how to tackle properly. Yeah. Um, the other the other side of it would be, OK, if you watch uh, an American football game, I, I have to say American football because you're in England, because if I say football, they're going to think <laughs> soccer and they're like, no, nah, that's not right? football. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so in an American football game, um, you know, someone gets hit hard, look a little woozy, they go under the tent. And who knows what they're doing under the tent? You know, you know, maybe yeah. they're saying, hey, you know what? You make a lot of money. So I don't think you really have a concussion. So get back out there. And then the backups. Right. You never know. But seriously, we're trying to it would be nice if we could find, let's say, a fingerprint a blood sample to see if if there's a blood marker for finding an elevation in something dealing with traumatic brain injury. And we did a mm. preliminary study on female, on soccer players at, at my university, where it's a division two school, small school. Girls are pretty athletic, but it's not quite at the level of division one, but either way, they're athletic and in shape girls. Yeah. So we compare them to women who just work out. So, and in fact, these are not just women who work out. These are women who are, who are very good athletes. Some actually national class. We had one world-class. They were mainly uh, cardio uh, athletes, so run, the run, bike, swim sports. Yep. And, and what we found was that in these female soccer players, remember, these are 18 to 21 year olds. They had a significantly, excuse me, a significantly higher level of what's called neurofilament light. The abbreviation, oddly enough, is NFL, neurofilament mm -hmm. light. That protein leaks from your brain um, into the bloodstream. Yep. It's not supposed to do that. Um, so elevated, elevated levels of NFL or neuro, neurofilament light, which is indicative of some sort of brain injury. And people say, well, what, what does that mean? Well, it just means that some of these girls have brain injury that, because what, what is, what is soccer? I mean, think of, think of this and you could ask all your British friends there, you know, why is it soccer is the only sport where you purposely use your head to impact an object and not just impact it soft, you're impacting it hard. Yeah. <laughs> even in fight sports you can't use your head um in football you're not allowed to spear you're not supposed to tackle with your head so soccer i.e football uh, yeah. is the only yeah. sport that you know and, and it's like okay uh, do we know the long-term effects we don't i mean it's it's you know we've only started to recently study it and you know what happens to these old soccer players after they've been playing you know professionally um Nobody knows. And in fact, maybe no one's even thought of, excuse me, thought of looking at it. So kind of interesting data we got. That was from a, a study we did a couple of years ago. Yeah, that's fascinating because I hear often from players here who are, um, well, they're older now, they would have played in like yeah. 50s, 60s, 70s, like even the weight of the ball back then was so much more than it is today. And so the head, you know, the repetitive trauma from heading was even more significant oh, and, the, and the ball would actually get wet and absorb all the, the water. So it would just get, you know, imagine in England get heavier and heavier. And so I think that's where a lot of the 60, 70 year olds, you know, the level of trauma would be even higher than right. you know, the ball yeah, today is more synthetic. And so it's, I didn't know it's, that the ball was heavier back. I didn't know that. Yeah, no, I mean, and I think it's just to do with the, the, you know, how it would take up the water, but that was one that I just, 
again, you think of fight sports, you think of American football, you think of ice hockey. Um, but I didn't really realize how much, you know, soccer was impacted. Yeah. So, yeah. It's crazy how, how much it's impacted. In fact, if I recall, there was a study where they actually had soccer players. It was a randomized controlled trial where they actually threw the ball at them the way you would in a game. Yeah. And they actually, he they headed the ball. That was part of the study. Yeah. And they did find signs of brain trauma, which kind of makes sense because you're basically, it's like someone tapping your head a lot. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah oh, for sure. It. And on the, you know, on the therapeutic side, I guess prevention or even post head trauma, you know, obviously we see things like creatine, a little bit of research yep. around curcumin and things, you know, in your eyes, what are some of the big rocks there? And what are some of the things that might be coming down the, the pipeline? Well, I think even though we've had data on creatine helping cognitive function for a while, it's only recently, I think, seeped into the notion that if you take it prophylactically, it might be good for your head. Yeah. Um, because, well, what? Well, let's backtrack. For one, most people have this sort of weird view of creatine. I mean, there's so many misconceptions about it yeah. that that forget the whole athletic thing, just asking people in general, they're like, oh yeah, creatine. Some people think creatine's a steroid, which is kind of goofy, um, yeah. but it causes cramps. It's bad for your kidneys. And I'm like, still going around, right? Yeah. <laughs> who makes this stuff die. up? You know? And, and, and so it's funny that, and, or ironic that the supplement that has literally over 500 studies is the one that we're constantly defending. It's, it yeah, should be the, the other way around. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. You know, and, um, we did a, uh, uh, this was the first time in a long time. I actually, uh, did a study on sedentary people because all my studies are in trained people. Yeah. And it was in collaboration with the psychology department, psychology department. And, and we gave them creatine. This was for a period of six weeks. And then we stratified them to sedentary, which was, which was most of them. Most of them did nothing. These, uh, the, they were basically college students who did nothing. Okay. So yeah. you have sedentary well, people. Laptop time. Right. Then you had moderately active. Then you had a highly active. And, and honestly, I was like, you know, I've never worked with sedentary people. I don't know what'll happen, but we found something quite interesting that the cognitive measures, and these are some com complicated measures that the psychology professor did them all. I'm like, Hey, I don't know what the hell you're doing, but it looks yeah. interesting and I don't yeah. understand them, but <laughs> We found that the people who are sedentary responded best to creatine when they did these cognitive measures. Yeah. The wow. people who are well-trained, it was like, eh, not barely a response. And, and unfortunately, we did not um, assess diet because my guess is this. People who train tend to want to eat protein more and protein has creatine. Levels, levels going up. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, you know what? I've never met a sedentary person who's like, you know what? I got to make sure I get no protein. Gram per pound, but sedentary. <laughs> oh, but that's really fascinating. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. I mean, the fact that sedentary people can benefit from it, because I've always thought, you know what? You got to work out, consume your creatine. But even if you don't work out, you don't care about muscle mass or any of that. I say, you know, the cognition stuff, the cognitive performance benefits, I think, are a great reason to take it. And I don't know how long you, I don't know if you take creatine, but I've been taking creatine yeah, yeah. since 1990 something. Yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty similar. <laughs> still, still standing too. Right. Exactly. <laughs> hey friends. I hope you're enjoying this episode. A quick reminder. If you want to stay up to date on when each episode of the performance nutrition podcast drops, 
and receive evidence-based insights every month, then join the Athlete Performance Nutrition community by signing up to our newsletter. Head over to athleteperformancenutrition.com and sign up in the big black box. All right, let's get back to the conversation. Well, listen, Doc, if we kind of uh, dovetail here or segue a little bit into, you get a lot of questions from practitioners, performance nutritionists, sport dietitians, you know, when they get into a new sport, a sport that they're not familiar with, of really kind of where they start. And, you know, oftentimes, obviously, understanding physical demands, energy systems. So I'm just wondering your sort of process, you know, as you go into a new sport, deconstruct that when you're looking at that sport to be able to then figure out, okay, from a nutrition standpoint, where should I be thinking? Where are the opportunities? No, that's a good question. Um, the way I, I tend to approach it is this. Uh, so if an athlete wants to get better, they're working with their trainer, whoever. I always tell them, okay, let's separate the skill stuff because they have coaches who just deal with skills. So don't worry about skill. Your goal is nutrition and or conditioning. Um, yeah. And oftentimes it's both. Um, just because people who are really good at strength conditioning oftentimes are self-taught in nutrition. However, it's yeah. not the other way around. And again, this is what I found. People yeah. who are taught in nutrition aren't necessarily good with the strength conditioning. So 100%. for whatever reason. So I say, okay, leave the skill stuff alone. Now let's figure out what the bioenergetic needs of the sport is. And I always say, let's take baseball. Yeah. Uh, baseball or softball. It's uh, basically a power sport. It's uh, the energy system is pure ATP and PCR, right? Mm -hmm. It's you don't need cardiovascular conditioning. Unlike uh, there's still coaches who make baseball players run, which is, I've always thought it's kind of odd. So you don't need <laughs> cardiovascular conditioning. Um, so what would help a speed power sport or a power sport? Well, one, so the approach is this. They'll say, well, should I work on diet or supplements or both? And I always say, work on what works. <laughs> work on there what works. Go. I think a mistake a lot of these trainers make and or nutritionists or dietitians is that they try to fix their diet first, which... I don't know about you, but changing someone's diet is ungodly hard. It's, yeah. it's really hard. The only people who are really good at following a diet plan, at least from my experience, are bodybuilders because it's part of their sport. Now, you get a 21-something who's been eating like pretzels and pizza and sometimes has a steak and eats crap. Are you really going to fix their diet that much in the few weeks or months that you have with them? The answer is no. It's just not going to happen. And again... Maybe it'll happen, but I'm taking a very pragmatic. It's be slow and gradual, even if it does happen, right? It's yeah, going to take time to layer yeah. on and like. So what I try to do, in fact, I work with mostly endurance athletes because that's who I'm around. Is okay. What are the simple things? Well, on the diet side, I tell them I'm not giving you a diet, but but yeah. I do know for most of you, getting adequate protein's a problem. So the one thing I ask you to do, I I, I give them simple behaviors. One thing I want you to do is have a post workout shake after you train, all the time. It's a yep. simple thing. All of you can, I hope all of you can comply, but I will say, if you can't comply to that, guess what? You'll never comply to a change in diet. If you can't have <laughs> yeah, a shake after you work out, you ain't yeah. changing your diet. So that's the one thing I want you to do. And then the issue of supplements always come up. I'm like, okay, supplements are easy because you're not really making a wholesale change. So let's take a simple one. Let's say for distance running or cycling, caffeine. Some yeah. people... If they drink coffee, I say you, you can actually drink black coffee before a race, or it could be coffee with sugar. Either way, yep. it's probably going to help. Um, they'll say, well, what about creatine? And I say, this is kind of tricky. For runners, because they might gain body weight, it might be an issue. For rowers, it doesn't matter. For rowers, it'll definitely help because there's 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 data on rowing uh, and creatine. 
So it depends on the sport. And obviously for strength power sports, creatine would help quite well. And sure. then, you know, the whole, we go through the whole laundry list of supplements. What about beta alanine? Well, for rowing, it would definitely help. For a sport like baseball, it would be completely useless. So I always ask, find what the goal is of the athlete. And obviously, if they're in a particular sport, we kind of know what their goal is. I mean, because they're playing a sport, the goal obviously is to win, but they want to be better individually. And once we know the goal, we figure out, you know, we'll know the energy systems. And then we figure out what simple dietary changes they can make and what simple supplement changes they make. Because from my experience, well, actually watching friends who try to do the new, the diet thing full time, all I see is frustration. And in fact, in fact, they'll always say, oh my God, my client, you know, after two weeks on the diet, I put them on. Now they're bitching about how nothing's happening. I'm like, it's two weeks. And they're like, I know, I know, but they're complaining like, you know, fat's supposed to melt off in two weeks. I'm like, I'm like, that's why I don't give diet advice. <laughs> exactly. They just complain. It's like, two. how about this? Try two years. But if you say two years, I'll be like, two years? I got to wait two years for this? I'm like, how about 20 years? Can you do this for the next 20 years? Like what, 20 years? <laughs> so Yeah, the buy-in gets to be pretty steep. And uh, it's interesting because even with athletes, I mean, the best success I get is when we get to hire them a personal chef, right? Because like, all that's taken care of. Yes. Palatability's up and it's like, but that's obviously a big step up for most of us to go to that level. But uh, man, I wish it I is tricky. Yeah, I mean, that would be the dream. And, and Doc, if you just circle back to even just for practitioners listening in again, if, if, if and I've had this from clients who are even, you know, kind of type A's and high achievers, like, oh, I don't want to blend a shake or I don't want to carry the powder. Like, is that where you would just segue into like, you know, a pint of milk or or an RTD or something like that? Like, would you just go more convenience yes. at that point? Absolutely. In fact, it, the goal is to make sure they can comply with the behavior and make sure the behavior is as simple as possible. So I actually don't even recommend protein powders. I'm like, these are shakes you can buy. They range anywhere from 20 grams of protein to 40 grams of protein. Yeah, Just get at least 20 grams. If you get more, that's better. But if you get 20, that's still good. Um, but yeah. the powders, I mean, the bodybuilders really good with, you know, scooping powders, yeah. putting creates and all that. But the Look, average person, it. they go to a gym or they go out for a run or they go out, you know, for a bike ride or whatever. They get in their car and they want something to drink. And it's just, to me, you know, it's, I mean, humans, I guess we're kind of lazy. We want things sort of, here's your shake, <laughs> drink it. You know. Yeah. And I, I know at my university, that's literally, I think what they did when they've done training, here's your shake, <laughs> drink your shake. Yeah, hand it over to them. Yeah. Now go to class. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting in the general population too, because we're so used to a sporting environment where you get into some of these other environments where like having a shake is just different than what everybody else is doing. And so there's already a bit of social, you know, you have to be really into it, don't you, to decide to sort of do something that's markedly different than everybody else rather than just grabbing a drink that's ready to go, right? Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's true. But then again, you know what, in terms of behavior that's markedly different, how people who exercise are doing a behavior that's markedly different. True, true. <laughs> If we pick your brain a little bit more here, uh, Doc, sports where we're relying on, again, explosive sports. Again, let's circle back, thing like, like an ice hockey 30, 60 second shift. Now, in a game, you're only going to be playing 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes. So we're not going to tap out glycogen stores completely. But this is one where I see a lot of strength coaches around the idea that, well, if they're not losing glycogen completely, then carbohydrates aren't inherently that important during shift or between periods. So just wondering, Again, how you sort of deconstruct that? Yeah, I think uh, I think part of that would be, and the the players and or the coaches probably know more in terms of 
the exact amount of time they're on on ice. Um, yeah. And from that, you can sort of <clears throat> back calculate what their energy needs would be if they need to consume carbs, you know, during the game. And to me, there's not a downside to consuming carbs during a, during a game. If anything, it has no effect or it might help. Um, mm -hmm. Carb And in fact, carbs and caffeine, because the extra sugar, I mean, certainly not going to hurt. It's easy. Uh, as you know, carbohydrates much is easy to oxidize. So it's a simple yep. fuel. Uh, the caffeine can help, you know, the central nervous system. So yeah. I I always tell athletes, try this in practice, at least particularly in practice that mimics the game. See how you feel. And then if it seems to help, implement it in the game. Um, but I, I guess a lot of coaches themselves are kind of, they want, they don't want one athlete doing A and the other athletes doing B and C. They kind of want them all doing the same thing. I mean, if it works for one person, you'd think it worked for everyone else, but um, it kind of depends on how much someone's playing. I mean, whether it's hockey or any other sport, but I would I always suggest try it in training, try it in practice, and and at least you'll get some sense of whether or not it's helping. But I doubt it's going to hurt. So it's one of those things. You know, one of my favorite sayings that I tell athletes is if it, if it helps or has a neutral effect, try it. I mean, yeah, nothing bad could happen. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it's one of those ones where it gets tricky when you go body composition sort of concerns and then i just find it interesting when we're consuming large amounts of carbohydrate or sugars away from activity or sport and then within the game we're actually not consuming that much and you think to yourself okay like to your point i think we need to flip that a little bit because yes. we're gonna at worst get a neutral effect and more than likely whether it's obviously on the physical side or, or cognitively we're gonna you know have that sort of sharpness there yeah and in fact for, you know the whole sugar thing um that I, I, my general advice is as far as diet, you shouldn't, you should limit what you consume in terms of sugar outside of training and or the game, but it's perfectly fine to consume that simple sugar, you know, during training, um, mm -hmm. if it helps you perform. So, and you see this a lot with endurance athletes in, in a way they almost have to consume sugar. If, especially like if you're on a bike ride, if you're cycling hard for two to three hours, you kind of need to do that. And also it helps you practice for when you're actually in a race, you're already used to consuming fluid or some sort of food. Um, yeah. Obviously for the, you know, if you're just in into resistance training, I mean, <laughs> energy expenditure is like nothing, let's face it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not quite the accelerations and decelerations of team sport right. and whatnot, right? Right. Yeah. And then, I mean, I guess the last part of that would be just sort of late game energy. I mean, I think the tricky part with team sport again is you just the palatability of people like to have just water or have that mouth feel or things but we know as you get into the back half of a basketball game or a hockey game or whatever it might be i mean we're going to get some potential benefits there so are there certain strategies you've used over the years or colleagues or you know athletes that you've worked with that found helpful oh yeah i'm a, i'm a big fan of sugar and caffeine during an event um particularly the chronic endurance events you know the i call them the run bike swim sports Yep. Uh, for team sports, team sports is a little trickier because obviously it depends on what you're you're playing. But for instance, yep. you know, a sport like basketball, certainly it's going to help. I mean, particularly if you're a, a guard, because guards are doing most of the running. I, you know, yep. centers they don't really run that much. Would it help them? I, maybe, maybe not. I mean, again, try it in practice. Um, but a lot of the nutrition focuses on you know uh, uh, proper hydration. So that's particularly in South Florida. If you're training outside, that's an issue you got to consume plenty of fluid yeah um, and if you're exercising for more than an hour i always suggest you know some sort of sports drink i don't think water water won't cut it uh by itself yeah. 
Um, and also a lot of the, to me, a lot of the nutrition is something that they have to practice um, during training. And, um, and actually the strategies are fairly simple in terms of calculating how much fluid you need, how much carbohydrate you need. Um, like for instance, I work with a cyclist who we calculate, okay, let's go for 60 to 90 grams of carbs per hour, see how that works. Mm -hmm. uh, mix with, you know, 16 ounces of fluid, throw some electrolytes in there. And obviously some of this is kind of guesswork because each person's different. Yeah. Like you said, but once you go, yeah, once you go and... these ramifications of, you know, each athlete ends up, as long as they're cognizant of what they're doing, they end up dialing down what's really important for them. So, but you know, a lot of the, a lot of the sports nutrition advice I give, it has to do with what they do during training as opposed to what they do necessarily during a game. Cause if they do it during training, um, it's in a way it, it sort of takes care of itself during a game. They're, you know, much smarter about it. Yeah. And that's the nice part about endurance too, isn't it? It's a sort of the training kind of mimics exactly the competition as well. And you kind right. of get into that flow and repeat and whatnot. Um, you know, when it comes to students over student athletes, young athletes over the years, I mean, obviously we know diet wise of it's not, you know, it's it's it can be pretty processed although the culinary changes at universities over the last 20 years blow blow me away i mean to see what what's available now but what are some of the areas that you feel like in terms of student athletes you know would be important to focus on that you still find are, are some of those uh opportunities you know it's interesting i've been teaching my university now for i guess i don't know not quite 15 years and i have a lot of student athletes in my classes because it's an exercise science major yeah. And in general, they eat like total crap, like, like total crap. And in fact, it's not uncommon. <laughs> like I might teach an afternoon class and it's not uncommon to hear professor. I, I'm, I just haven't eaten all day. I'm like, what do you mean you haven't eaten all day? Don't you have practice at like five or six o'clock PM? Yeah. But I get so busy. I don't have time to eat. I'm like, how there's, that's a mentality I don't get. How do you get so busy or not? Like for me, I'm like, I wake up, I'm like, I think I want to eat. 12 o'clock comes, I think I want to eat. So a, yeah, especially in your 20s, late teens. <laughs> right. I mean, you're, you're, in a way, you're little, I think some of them are still growing. So yeah, the biggest issue is being underfed. A lot of these student athletes, not only do, do they eat crappy, but a lot of them just don't eat enough. And so mm. they're definitely not getting enough protein. And their eating tends to be really hit or miss. Like they might skip breakfast, they'll have a crappy lunch at the cafeteria, then they go to practice, and then you know seven or eight o'clock at night comes around, and then they have their only real meal. And yeah. that's why whenever I've talked to the strength and conditioning coach or the coaches, you know, I'm like, okay, we're not changing their diet. I mean, this is whatever. This is a pattern they probably did it in high school, so it's they're following the same pattern. And that's where I stick to the simple stuff, like, hey, could you at least get them to just drink a shake after they after they train after practice? Just have give them a shake, give them two shakes. You know, yeah. if they're really hungry. But yeah, they're underfed, and and the diet quality is poor. And but invariably, you know, a student athlete will say, but you know what, I'm really good. You know, I'm really good. I'm like. <laughs> Yeah, you're young. You don't realize. Yeah, you're getting away with it. Yeah, you don't realize that because of your age, you you can recover, even though you probably didn't get much sleep and your diet's not very good. Yeah, you will recover. Mm. But but, but listen, when you're 18 to 21, do you really believe that when you hit 40 that you're not recovering well? Like, <laughs> they're like, what are you talking about? I feel good. I mean, I had 10. No, I don't know if they had 10 beers the night before, but 
you know, I, I, yeah. I remember in college, there were guys who literally could like drink till they passed out and then they wake up like, oh, I'm ready to work out. Raise a train. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's an interesting one as well, because it's one of those sort of simple things that can seem almost too simple of just establishing a meal frequency for an athlete to say, hey, I need you to eat this one, two, three, four, five times a day. We got to keep repeating that until you actually do all five of those. Because like you said, they were more likely to hit the energy you know, targets and the protein targets and everything else, but it's easy to just, uh, I mean, heck, you know, professional athletes kind of roll in training yeah. camp, croissant, hit the, the court. You're just like, what are we, what's going on here? But, but what I have noticed, like with professional athletes here, like in the NBA or NFL, um, even major league baseball, I've noticed, and, and maybe they're more cognizant of it, but as they get older, they realize, oh my God, I'm not recovering the way I did when I was 21. Yeah. So all of a sudden they're like, I better change my nutrition, focus mm -hmm. on sleep. And it's like, imagine if they did that when they were 21 versus now they're in their mid thirties. It's like, you know, I say Tom Brady's doing something right. The fact they could play football and be 45 years old. Yeah. And I think part of it is, you know, when you look at his diet or training, it's like, okay, there's some weird stuff going on, but part of it might be in what he doesn't do. Maybe he doesn't mm. stay out late. Maybe he doesn't drink too much. Maybe, in fact, I don't even know if he drinks. To be, well, he did drink at the Super Bowl when they won. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. He probably only drinks for a couple months and then once he's back on, he seems right. like that type of personality that, you know. So he might be avoiding those behaviors that tend to just be not good for you versus a lot of, you know, we're, we always want to see, okay, what are they doing? What are they doing? whether it's diet or sleep mm -hmm. or whatever, when in fact, you might, might want to step back and say, yeah, but look what they're not doing and look what yeah. those other guys are doing. And maybe that's why he can play, still be healthy at 45. I think it's still sling the ball. I mean, yeah, I, I don't sure. know about you. Have you thrown a baseball lately? Yeah. I used to throw a lot of baseballs back in the day. And now oh, you were a baseball one, player. And, and now when I throw one, I can hear all of the noises. <laughs> it's like, okay. If I like my, I used to coach my kids when they played softball. And so I got used to, you know, throwing with them. Yeah. Um, but I had to warm up a long time. Yeah. Like I remember as a kid, I could just get a ball and fling it. <laughs> I could just fling it. Now I'm yeah. like, I'm like, if someone says, Hey, let's play catch. I'm like, could I yeah, warm up for a long time? For I'll you? need 40 throws just to get the blood flowing. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that's why when I see a 45 year old playing professional football, I'm like, wow. Whatever he's doing, it's certainly crazy out of the ordinary. And because you and I can't even throw a dang ball. <laughs> yeah, no, it is, it is, uh, you know, incredible. And, you know, I guess maybe on that note, if we shift gears a little bit and talk about, you know, biomarkers, lab testing, recovery, you know, whether it's the collegiate athlete, whether it's some of the pro athletes or endurance athletes that you work with, you know, what are some of the, the tests that are staples for you? And then what are some of the ones that, uh, you know, you find maybe or can give you that little bit extra knowledge for certain clients and it's difficult to tease out you know what's comes. what what's interesting is um you know i've talked to some of my colleagues about looking at heart rate variability um can't really do blood tests because the average athlete you're not going to have access to any blood tests so it's a mm -hmm. typical stuff like heart rate variability sleep quality and whatnot um and, and, you know it's funny and i do this myself i always go back to and this sounds kind of crazy. I always go back to how do you feel? Because yeah. I do that to myself. I, you know, I have a watch that measures everything. I'm like, okay, well, you know, my heart yeah. rate was this and this and that. Yeah. The next day I should be recovered, but the next day I feel like crap. And I'm like, whoa. Uh, and it's the same with athletes I'd work with. It's like, okay, you feel like crap, even though technically you slept really well. So 
Do you go by the number on your watch or do you go by how you feel? And even during training, I I don't know if you do this. I don't know. If, do you do a lot of cardio? Less than back in the day, but uh, <laughs> still, still some, yeah. Okay. So I do uh, I do a lot of paddling. They have stand-up paddling yeah, races in Florida. Right. Because, awesome. I mean, it's warm. So we could have, you could literally race all year. And I have a watch that measures everything, stroke rate, stroke distance. I mean, I have all this information. And then, but then when it gets down to it, I'm like, Okay, basically, if I wake up and I feel really good, I'll train hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so here I am, a scientist being, you know, just go by how you feel. Um, and others need the number. Like, for instance, I, for a while, I did a self-experiment. I'm like, okay, I'm just, I'm going to use heart rate uh, as a as a gauge of training intensity. And, and so yeah. I can determine what my volume is. And for whatever reason, heart rate and, and level of uh, perceived exertion or perceived effort a lot of times it just didn't match. I'm like, yeah. this is, I'm like, okay, my heart rate is low, but I feel like I'm killing myself or my heart rate's high. And I'm like, whoa, I'm like, I feel really good. So yeah, I've quit the heart rate stuff. <laughs> now I'm back <laughs> to just perceived exertion because I, and, and, and I go back and forth. I'm like, okay, I'm going to wear my heart rate monitor, see what happens. I'm like, but there's sometimes there's this weird mismatch and I'm like, you know what? I, I, sometimes the the old school stuff of you wake up how do you feel mm -hmm. do you feel like you slept well is almost good enough i mean well, i'm not sure it's good enough for everybody but it, yeah. it seems to be good enough and that's what they let's face it that's what that's what coaches did in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s it's like how do you feel i mean yeah yeah i guess it's the nature of a complex problem isn't it I mean, there's so many inputs that we can't know all the inputs and something's being influenced and it's like we're trying to tease it out to these sort of three or four metrics, but there's just so many more things. I mean, mental, emotional state, like you say, sleep and everything else, hydration status. And so yeah, uh, it is interesting that if you go back to sort of the heuristics or kind of the wisdom side of how do you feel? And it's it's actually over time a pretty good marker. It's of uh it seems to work most of the time. So it's uh yeah, it's it's interesting how the more technology we get, the more now we have all this data. But we're not sure what to do with all this data. It's, it, you know, it's sort of like I have a friend who trains a lot of mixed martial arts fighters. Mm -hmm. um, so how does he train them? Well, they it's basically you train by feel. I mean, you still go through the typical strength and conditioning, but there's things you can measure. But at the end of the day, is it a predictor of anything? And the answer is, well, no, it's kind of not predictor of anything. But we like to, th I think we like to think we have more control over how the human body responds than we really have because maybe that makes us feel better we're like well you know your heart rate variability was this yesterday and now it's this so we're going to dial back on your training and, and the, the god's honest we don't know <laughs> we don't freaking know <laughs> it's tough especially as you get away from endurance sport right i mean i actually had uh, cory peacock uh, dr cory peacock on a few uh seasons ago and he was yeah. talking about kumar usman and, and even using omega wave and things and basically the score always came back crappy but he, he <laughs> felt great and <laughs> great and everything so then you just you know like you say you're going by feel and then i guess the practitioner's perspective and then the athlete's perspective and sort of marrying those up and then you know use, using the data as sort of a background information but right you can't let it steer things too much can you no and in fact you know i've always asked myself okay if there's a metric or a couple metrics i would use we'll, we'll separate endurance stuff from the strength power stuff that I would use that I think would give me somewhat useful information. And then with the nerd stuff, I go back to heart rate because, okay, it may not be perfect, but it gives you something. Yeah. With the strength power stuff, 
I can't think of anything. I, I I don't know what it is other than, you know, if you're coaching someone, it's, it's, it's almost by feel it's um, um, but I can't think of a objective assessment that, um, okay. Uh, we think you're going to do real well in that powerlifting meet um, other than we've watched you train. We see how your, you know, your volume's gone up or weight's gone up or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. I can't think of that metric, you know? So it's, um, it, it's really tricky. It's really tricky. And uh I mean, I guess someone is coming up with a metric somewhere to to determine, you know, as as a way of gauging a- athletic improvement. But then when you deal with the team sports, forget it. It's just it's almost too complicated. Like, um, you know, we say American football is the most complicated team sport because there's so many moving parts. Mm-hmm. You could have the best you could literally have the best play that's called by the offensive coordinator. But all it takes is one guy to mess up. One guy, one guy messes up and it's like, whoa, everyone else knew what they were doing, but that one guy messed up and it played crumbles. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, team sport's almost impossible. And that's why coaching a team sport is like crazy hard. It's just crazy hard. I mean, talk about variables you can't even control. It's just crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's just tricky, isn't it? With just the, the readiness and of course, a lot of force plates and things being used now to be able to kind of assess that type of fatigue or neurological fatigue. And it's, uh, yeah. it's interesting how the mindset matches up because you can still have that, but if the mindset's in a certain way, certain athletes can just sort of all the numbers again, look terrible, but they can sort of push through and you might have an athlete that looks good, but for some reason they can't seem to find that pop. And so there's, yeah, always that sort of gray, gray in there. And, yeah. And I think, yeah. you know, that that's what makes, you know, I think that's what makes our field fun because we're trying to, we're trying to put a box around it and understand it. But again, there's so many variables, and I guess that's what makes it interesting to study. And that's why, Absolutely. yeah, that's you why get closer and closer to the truth. But there's, there's still, it's yeah, so complex, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it's crazy complex. And so I think that's why I tend to gravitate towards those sports that you get first place, second place, or third place, the individual sports, because the yeah. variables are easier to control. Yeah. The team sports, when, when, if someone plays a team sport and asks me for advice, I always say, well, look, I can help you do better with X, Y, and Z, but it doesn't mean you'll play better. I mean, because yeah. there's all these other things going on. It, you, For sure. You, be stronger you or faster, but. Right. Exactly. can't be hit the baseball any better. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Now, this is, uh, you go again, transitioning a little bit here. I mean, if we talk diet and how difficult diet is to, to shift to people, I'm just curious, though, in terms of certain foods, maybe over the years, again, with different types of athletes, whether certain types of carbohydrates at different times, or again, what, are there some of those tools that you use with, with, with athletes or that you've had other practitioners use that you found, Hey, that's particularly useful or. Um, well, what I've found is for most people, uh, they, they tend to eat or mimic what they did growing up. So you're working mm-hmm. within sort of a system of this is what they grew up eating. So you're dealing with this. They're not going to really deviate from that that much. Um, and just to give you an example, like, like myself or people who grew up in a, you know, an Asian family, we eat yeah. a lot of rice, right? You're not you're not going to get someone of Asian descent to eat less rice or no rice. It's just not mm-hmm. going to happen. So you're dealing with okay, this is what they're used to eating. So you got to work within that sort of small bubble of food, and that yeah. trying to introduce new things oftentimes doesn't work. So it's sort of like this is th- this is the menu they're bringing to you, and it's like okay, let me pick from your menu what works best for you. And maybe yeah. some of the things that aren't so good, we'll, we'll limit it, but we won't eliminate it. I'm not a fan of eliminating anything because I think people by nature, if you tell them you can't have it, 
they're going to want it more. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it's, um, it's one of those things where it's, you sort of have to work with what they're giving you versus, Hey, you know what, I'm going to, this is the best thing I think you could do dietarily because adherence to something like that is, is, is near impossible. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough one, isn't it? Especially you gotta be, you gotta have the buy-in and the years to be able to work with somebody. Don't you need to be able to lay that on? Cause like you say, in four, eight, 12 weeks. Yeah. It's, it's a challenge. Yeah. The buy-in is uh the buy-in is difficult. Um, I, I do have a short story. I worked with one of my good friends. Her name is Victoria Burgess. She is the second individual, the first woman to paddle from Cuba to Florida. Wow. Um, yeah, that's how, took, how long was that? 27 hours she paddled in the ocean. Yeah, it's no joke. <laughs> yeah, no joke. And the scary part, I, I said, isn't it dark out there? <laughs> yeah. Because they have a they have a crew, they have a boat that's like 1,500 yeah. feet away, you know, just make sure she doesn't die. Um, yeah. She's like, you would, not, you would not believe how pitch black it is in that. But because it's so pitch black, you see all the stars. Um, yeah. But I said, but you can't see the waves. She's like, no. So it's it's a little scary. <laughs> it's a little wow. scary. Unbelievable. But this was an interestingly dietary. This was an example where when she first brought it up, I said, okay, there's in a way training for this is easy. She's highly skilled paddler and surfer. So the water's not an issue. I mean, she dealt with 12 foot, 12 foot swells in, uh, in, in between Cuba and Florida. Wow. You're really only dealing with two things. One volume has to go way up. You got to paddle, paddle, paddle. You got to paddle for hours. I mean, cause if yeah. you're going to paddle for a day, you better get used to paddling for half a day under ideal conditions because your condition. Yeah. The other thing is I want you to eat anything and everything that tastes good. I don't care if it's the shittiest food you could think of. If it tastes good, whether it's Oreos, pizza, cookies, everything, but you have to practice it while you do these long paddles. So she literally ate all the junk you could possibly eat for the 20 something hours, because the goal was this. You want your brain on the the minute your brain says, I'm done, you're done. You're going to quit. So let's just keep your brain awake. Caffeine, sugar, caffeine, sugar. Not so much protein because you're going to have a hard time digesting it. So it was really caffeine, yeah. carbs, caffeine, carbs, caffeine, sugar, uh, yeah. Pop-Tarts. There's a picture of her trying to eat pasta. I mean, they basically handed her spaghetti and she's like stuffing it in her mouth while she's on the board. <laughs> so in a way, it was easy. This, this kind of dietary advice was easy because it's really it's really survival. I'm like, yeah, you do this, you survive. If you don't do this, you're going to quit. And then you'll be embarrassed because your friends are like, oh, you didn't make it from Cuba to Florida, even though, you know, I mean, who's going to make it? it. Right. (laughs) So that was a neat way that was quote an easy one, because the goal is, you know, it's it's, well, it's not easy technically. I mean, I would I would drown if I tried to paddle from Cuba to Florida. Yeah, same here. (laughs) But it's 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 sort of like um, have you heard of the Badwater 135? It's a foot race. Yeah. Yeah. 135 mile foot race it gets hot yeah. as hell they have a crew each, each runner has a crew follow them but but one of the things you got to learn is how to eat it's it, and just yeah. don't worry about your what you're eating just get food and calories while you're running so in a way those are kind of those are kind of fun simple things when you're dealing with athletics because the goal is simple you're going from point a to point b you don't want to die you want to live gotta eat keep the food fuel coming in yeah. yeah, literally training the gut, aren't you? To just be able to get through that and be yes. able to maintain your work output and get used to it. Because, like you said, you can't be out in the middle of the water or the middle of nowhere and right. not, and start cramping up, and it, oh my God. it gets yeah, it gets bad pretty quick, right? <laughs>
Awesome, Doc. Well, listen, I could pick your brain here all day, but I want to respect your time. So as we kind of circle back to what conversation at the, at the start of the discussion here, you know, in, in terms of, you know, this year, lines of research that you, you guys are putting out, the students, you know, what, what's got you excited this year? Well, this year, uh, we, uh, I think the most important one is um, the, the fat mass and obesity uh, associated gene study, where we're, we're overfeeding uh, exercise trained subjects on protein to see how they, how their body weight responds. Um, mm -hmm. And if their genotype has an impact or not on the way they respond. Now, here's my personal bias. If regardless of your genetics, if you're eating overfeeding on protein, it's not, you're not going to get fatter on it. That's just, in fact, I think it'd be hard to get fat on protein overfeeding, but there could be yeah. those people. I mean, there might be people who, who do get fat on it, Yeah, but it's, but I doubt, I mean, it, it might be a rarity. Um, so that, I think that will be one of the more important studies we're, we're, that we'll be doing. Hopefully we'll be finishing it by the end of the year and we'll pre be presenting that data. I also want to, if you can, I invite you to the ISSN conference. It's uh, this June, percent. Um, June 15 to 17 in Fort, this is in Fort Lauderdale beach. So, Oh, nice. Yeah. So, nice. you know, bring the family, they can hang there out. There you go. Beach, you know? hey, it's a great Yeah. No, it is a great event. It's definitely one to check out. Uh, <laughs> we'll put all the links up there and, you know, Doc, I appreciate you, you carving out some time and, uh, and uh, yeah, I'll keep you posting when it goes up. Thanks, Mark. All right. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. You can find the full video interviews on YouTube at the Performance Nutrition Podcast channel. Finally, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe, all that good stuff. Thank you and see you next time. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.